This is the Morning Press, a BrainIron.com production. Here's 11 minutes or so of news for today, Friday, January 12th, 2024. Following through on threats issued at the end of last week, and not long after the United Nations adopted a resolution that called for an immediate end to attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels on commercial ships traversing the Red Sea, the United States and the United Kingdom, with additional support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands, launched retaliatory strikes against more than a dozen Houthi positions. Missiles fired from warships and submarines, with additional air support from fighter jets, rained down on five different areas in Yemen early Friday morning, targeting air defense systems, weapons depots, and locations from which previous attacks had been launched. The Houthis announced that the strikes killed five and injured six more, and promised that they would retaliate, quote, beyond the imagination and expectation of the Americans and the British, end quote. These strikes are expected to degrade but by no means eliminate the Houthis' war-making capability, and U.S. officials expect a military response, which will, no doubt, lead to further reprisals, on and on until the heat death of the universe. The Houthis claim to be carrying out their attacks on vessels in the Red Sea in response to Israel's ongoing actions in Gaza, and there is concern that the current violence could spark fresh fighting between the Iran-backed Houthi rebels and the Saudi-backed Yemeni government they deposed from the capital city in 2014. Mohammed Abdul Salam, a spokesman for the Houthis, wrote online of America and Britain that, quote, they were wrong if they thought that they would deter Yemen from supporting Palestine and Gaza, end quote, and that the Houthis would continue to target ships in the Red Sea. A brief editorial aside. You will no doubt hear in the news today that the latest attacks threaten to ignite a broader conflict in the region beyond what Israel is up to in Gaza, which is strange because those fears have already been realized. Even as Israel downshifts from its massive ground and air campaign in the Gaza Strip to what it says will be a more targeted approach moving forward, it has struck at targets in Lebanon and Syria and fought Palestinian militants in the West Bank. Iran-backed militias have attacked U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. Islamic State has taken the chaos as an opportunity to unleash terrorism in Iran. And now the U.S. and U.K. are firing on military targets in Yemen. Could it get worse? Surely it can and it will. But the broader regional conflict is already here. Fannie Willis, the Atlanta prosecutor who brought a state racketeering charge against Donald Trump and his associates last year over alleged 2020 election interference, is at the center of a personal drama that could spill over into serious legal questions that have the potential to derail her case against the former president. Attorneys for a Trump co-defendant have accused the Fulton County District Attorney of carrying on an affair with Nathan Wade, a special prosecutor who she appointed and whose salary, which has totaled more than $650,000 since late 2021, it is her job to approve. They allege that D.A. Willis subsequently directly benefited from the money her office paid Wade in the form of vacations the pair took together, for which Wade footed the bill. Wade, who is now in the process of getting divorced, was brought in by Willis to oversee the prosecution of the case against Trump after their alleged romantic entanglement had already begun. 
Though no direct evidence has yet been presented, the potential conflict of interest could mean trouble for the prosecution, and at the very least has shrouded the DA's office with a cloud of reasonable suspicion of unethical conduct, which Trump and his allies have used to claim that the entire prosecution has been illegally compromised since the beginning. A brief editorial aside, one way to understand what makes keeping Donald Trump the central figure in American political and cultural life so demoralizing and deranging and plain distasteful is to notice the sort of people he brings out of the woodwork and onto great prominence, both on his side and in opposition to him. Trump calls forth to the public stage the sorts of people who see in his example a path to power and influence that once terminated in the trashier corners of the culture. Gossip and society rags, television, dirty local politics. But now, know no bounds. He has always been, and revealed, the worst of us. The seething, grasping need for more, the soothing reminder of one's own virtue in the face of everyone else's fallen hypocrisy, the certainty that one's enemies are simply hateful, jealous wretches, only performing their outrage in service of their own egos or self-interest. So much of the professed concern about a potential second Trump presidency is posed in the hypothetical, what it could mean, how disastrously it might likely go for this or that interest group, or for the country as a whole, and misses the fact that, like in the Middle East, the current conditions already tell the story where a fray is about to unfold. Trump dances with the girl that brung him, so to speak. And what brung him was the belief that everybody else was just as awful as he was, a belief that is only justified over and over again by the presence of those who feel themselves called forth to defend or vanquish him. We're not sending our best, I'm saying, though some, I assume, are good people. If you've ever walked past a raving madman on the street corner, rather than engaged with him, you know the basic dynamic I'm referring to. The question is not how he will triumph or be defeated. We have been witnessing his easy victory for years now. But how we will react to the vacuum that is created when he mercifully disappears from the stage. On Wednesday, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission gave approval to the creation of a new class of exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, that will track the price of cryptocurrency. This will allow large financial management firms like BlackRock and Fidelity to offer Bitcoin ETFs as an investment product, adding to the legitimacy of the crypto industry, giving it a strong first foothold in American securities exchanges, the biggest in the world, and lowering the bar for entry for the everyday trader to gain exposure to cryptocurrency as an investment vehicle. SEC Chair Gary Gensler issued a statement separate from the approval that called cryptocurrency, quote, primarily a speculative, volatile asset, end quote, often used in an array of illegal activity, perhaps attempting to temper the everyday investor's enthusiasm for the new products. Much like buying into a precious metals ETF, buying shares of a Bitcoin ETF does not result in the investor actually owning the physical metal that then has to be warehoused and kept safe somewhere. Rather, the investor owns a financial product, the value of which fluctuates with the value of the asset, which is actually owned by the financial institution. Essentially, these new products allow investors to ride the often volatile crypto market's roller coaster without actually owning any Bitcoin. 
It's a way to invest in crypto without its inherent advantages, anonymity, untraceability, nor its downsides, like untrustworthy exchanges or the possibility of losing access to one's crypto wallet. On Thursday, the first day of trading for the new product, more than $4.5 billion worth of shares were traded. The largest of the new funds is owned by Grayscale, which first started buying up Bitcoin in 2013, has approaching $30 billion in assets, and holds more than 3% of the total Bitcoin supply. Concern about the major financial firms entering the Bitcoin space are numerous, from the perspective of the individual investor. On the one hand, bringing in more buyers should make the Bitcoin they already own more valuable. But on the other side, these firms could end up owning such a significant percentage of the coin that is available that they could introduce massive volatility with high-volume trades. Further, there is the ever-present concern that large institutions simply have access to far better information, far faster than the public does, putting the institutions in a position to profit off that disparity. One major U.S. player sitting out all the fun is Vanguard, which, along with BlackRock, is one of two dominant presences in the U.S. ETF market, but has no plans to offer one of the new Bitcoin ETFs, saying in a statement that the crypto products don't align with what they view as, quote, the building blocks of a well-balanced long-term investment portfolio, end quote. The price of Bitcoin, which peaked in November 2021 at over $65,000, has nearly doubled since September, a rally tied in part to expectations about the approval of these new funds, and currently stands at about $45,000 per coin. In old men going away news this week, Chris Christie dropped out of the race for the Republican nomination for president ahead of the first in the nation caucuses in Iowa on Monday. NFL coaches Pete Carroll and Bill Belichick parted ways with the Seahawks and the Patriots after 14 and 24 seasons, respectively. And Nick Saban, who won seven national titles, more than any major college football head coach, including six in his 17 seasons at the University of Alabama announced his retirement on Wednesday. In even briefer news, Google this week announced that it was laying off hundreds of employees across several divisions, including engineers who work in their Google Assistant and Pixel hardware divisions, continuing a months-long trend of job losses in the tech industry that spent much of the pandemic on a hiring spree. The Ferrara Candy Company has announced this week that Fruit Stripe Gum, the preferred chew of motorcycle-riding Rainbow Zebra Pitchman appreciators and temporary tattoo enthusiasts, will be discontinued after 55 years of teaching children the important lesson that loud advertising and appealing packaging do not a good product make. And finally, at the box office, a musical reimagining of the hit 2004 comedy Mean Girls opens in theaters nationwide, alongside The Beekeeper, an R-rated action movie which appears to assume the basic truth of all the deep state conspiracies one can imagine, and then deploys Jason Statham to exact righteous populist vengeance upon those irredeemably corrupt institutions. Now, here's a look at the weather. 
On this day, January 12th, in 1972, the New York Times reported on a 19-years-old college student named Abraham H. Treff, who, in an attempt to prove that large investment firms will ignore both regulations and best business practices in pursuit of commissions and profits, convinced employees at six different Wall Street brokerage houses to buy up some $200,000 in short-term speculative stock positions without Treff having to fork over a penny. That's about a million and a half dollars in 2023 terms, all of which he got purchased in his name without signing a document, seeing anyone in person, or producing a shred of evidence that he was good for it. He copped to the ruse himself, telling the New York Stock Exchange about the fraud committed in his name in an attempt to expose a lack of meaningful regulatory oversight. All of his positions were closed out by the various firms for lack of payment within a week, most actually having made a small profit on the investments in the meantime. The Times says that Treff proved his point, that these businesses obviously put profits ahead of prudence and violated their own regulations and probably the law along the way. It's a reminder just how much our system, the whole big, unwieldy, decentralized project of society, depends on most of us operating in good faith. There is no system we can build, no matter the strength of the regulatory framework, that cannot be undermined by someone intent on operating outside the rules, of course. But what's concerning me, lately, is just how easy it's becoming, in the age of infinite information, to create an edifice of good faith out of whole cloth that justifies one's own ends. We have been handed the tools to reverse-engineer a self-justifying reality that flatters whatever emotionally or psychologically satisfying belief we want to prop up, from which we will convince ourselves, and anyone who might question us, that we have only proceeded here from the ground up. We're not even furiously laying the track down in front of us as we go anymore. Instead, we're careening madly ahead. Nothing before us but untamed dark possibility, our backs turned on wherever it's taking us, laying down the track along the mess we're leaving behind, and then pointing to it as justification. As if to say, you see? This is how it had to be all along. The track was always there. To pile on another analogy, it's like we're all the roadrunner now. And what does it even mean? to ask the roadrunner to operate in good faith after he's already run through the tunnel painted on the side of the mountain, after he's already demonstrated that this previously false reality works just fine for him. That's the weather from here. How's it look out your window? The Morning Press is a production of the BrainIron.com multinational media empire. Please direct comments and complaints to BrainIronPodcast at gmail.com. For a transcript of today's episode and links to the stories referenced, find The Morning Press at BrainIron.substack.com, where, if you would like to support this and the other podcasting and blogging endeavors of the BrainIron.com media empire, you can also become a paying subscriber. If you can think of anyone else who might enjoy whatever it is we're up to around here, please consider sharing. Thanks, and barring the sudden onset of the inevitable, we'll talk to you Monday. The proceeding was created with 100% human content. <laughs>